Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. This week I want to think with you about co-production. This idea that instead of coming up with all of the research questions and ideas and doing the research ourselves, or even just consulting with our stakeholders and publics to kind of shape what we're doing, we actually do this hand in hand from the outset. Uh, we're finding out what are the questions, the evidence gaps, uh, the needs of people out there beyond the academy. Uh, and we're using that now to shape our funding proposals, uh, our, our research questions, our research designs, or maybe, depending on the research, uh, engaging with our stakeholders and publics in the, the, the collection of our data, in the interpretation of that data. Uh, in some cases, maybe even co-authoring uh, our publications with our stakeholders as well. But there is, of course, a problem here, which is that many of us attempt to co-produce our research, but very few of us actually achieve genuine co-production in any shape or form. I recently had the privilege of getting to work with Dennis Carter, a PhD researcher from Australian National University, ANU. And he was doing a systematic review of research projects uh, that uh, did knowledge exchange and tried to achieve impact to see whether what they set out to achieve actually married up with what they ultimately achieved at the end of the day. And as you might expect, uh, these projects were typically claiming that they were going to achieve various kinds of instrumental impacts, when in reality they achieved uh, far softer uh, impacts or, or just knowledge exchange uh, and no real evidence of impact at all at the end of the day. Now, in this project, um, as in the broader literature, I've done similar reviews myself, there were a lot of examples of people claiming that what they were doing was co-productive. And in reality, at least by my definitions of what co-production should in theory mean, these projects were really falling short. And uh, it's very easy for me to stand in judgment of others um, because co-production is hard in reality. And actually, when I look at my own research, it's clear that I have fallen short of those standards as well. Uh, various examples when I look back in my own career where, uh, yeah, I thought I was doing something that was genuinely co-productive. But now, uh, based on my knowledge at this point, yeah, I would do better. I, I, would, I would hope. Uh, if I was to do this again. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I still published these and claimed uh, in my publications that this was co-productive. Hmm. Uh, really. <laughs> so uh, the question then is, uh, how do we do something that is more co-productive? 
And in this episode, I want to go deep with this. So this is not going to be your practical how-to guide of participatory methods and, and all of those kind of things. Uh, instead, I want us to, to think about some of the assumptions we make, some of the mindsets and worldviews that uh, ultimately may be the root cause that uh, means we end up self-sabotaging uh, what we had hoped to be a genuinely respectful deep collaboration with our partners as equals. To do this, I'm going to share a story of a journey that I've been on recently to really quite deeply interrogate some of my own assumptions and worldviews uh, as a way of getting you to think deeply and interrogate yourself to a similar level of depth, hopefully. Uh, and uh, for me, this has touched on issues of racism that I was unaware of before. And so before I go any further, I want to give you a trigger warning. Uh, if you have experienced uh, issues with racism, if you've been subject um, to uh, racist attacks um, uh, or slights of, of any sort uh, and uh, have found that traumatic, then uh, the issues I'm going to talk about today could potentially be triggering for you. So uh, I'd uh, advise to maybe uh, hit pause, <laughs> reflect, uh, and maybe skip to the next episode. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, I'm going to share this story, um, and I'm also going to share uh, another story of uh, something perhaps that uh, takes us uh, even closer home to the majority of us uh, in terms of how we just work more respectfully with our own local community, uh, wherever we happen to live. Uh, and hopefully by the end of this, uh, you'll have uh, food for thought. Uh, you'll be interrogating yourself more deeply than ever before, but you will also have some practical ideas and ideas that will inspire you, uh, A, in terms of how you write, uh, but B, in terms of the action that you take to address these issues uh, at a deep level uh, and to start working more genuinely and deeply co-productively with the communities around you uh, or whoever it is that you uh, would like to work closer with to achieve impact from your research. So for those of you who don't know me very well, and of course you can't see me because this is a podcast, uh, I am of course uh, a white male uh, with pretty much every type of privilege you can imagine. I am physically able, heterosexual, English is my first language, the list goes on. And it is almost certainly because of this privilege that I've been able to hide from the more subtle forms of racism that are part of a system that privileges people like me, and so has been invisible to me. So many of our supposedly co-produced research projects are funded by developed world funders and led by us as developed world researchers. And while we might bring in work package leaders from local countries and run workshops with local communities to come up with the questions we're going to address in the research, we are still in the driving seat, ultimately responsible to our funders, and so driving the project to deliver the outcomes that we and our funders want to see. Uh, 
Now, in my case, this is typically environmental benefits, oh, and maybe a few papers along the way as well. And of course, the communities I'm working with don't care at all about the papers that I might want to publish and my colleagues, and they may not actually care about the environment. Well, yeah, I get that. It's important long term. But to be honest, I just want to be able to put food on my family's table this week. Uh, and great, once you've helped us to survive, then we might be able to legitimately engage with your research about long-term sustainability issues. Now, I first became aware of the, the issue that I want to unpack with you today when I was writing a paper with a bunch of co-authors, co and we'd been writing this for a couple of years. We'd met at a conference. Um, it had been a, a slow burn kind of paper, just uh, iterating year after year, building. Uh, and my co-authors in this time overtook me in their understanding of some of the deeper issues around co-production. Uh, and one by one, each of my co-authors asked to, to be removed from the co-authorship list because they believed that I had fallen into a trap, the kind of racism known as white centering. So here I am in this paper as a white male with all of the different layers of privilege that I've just mentioned, saying how we need to pay more attention to power dynamics and the voices of less privileged groups if we are to truly co-produce research. Now, while I think it's hard to argue with the argument I was making in this paper, that we need to nurture and empower these marginalised voices, giving them real power in the research process, I think my co-authors were right to criticise me for being the person to write or talk about this. Instead of writing about these issues, my authors encouraged me that I should get out of the way, stop writing, so I can stop putting me and my white male voice at the centre of the debate. Of course, gaining career advantage in doing so if the article's well received. And instead, I should be using my time and energy to actually empower and put these marginalised voices centre stage. But it doesn't stop there. Looking at my own research career with these new enlightened eyes, I realised that I was also guilty of two other forms of racism. The first is something that's been called a parachute or helicopter research. I did my PhD in the Kalahari Desert, and although I made efforts to reach out to local researchers, they were all too busy with teaching to make any real input to my work. And if you've worked in, uh, in Botswana, uh, where I was working, or many other developed countries, uh, the, yeah, you, you're complaining about your teaching load. You have seen nothing. <laughs> the teaching load these people have is, is just insane. And finding time for research, well, that is your summer holidays, is it? And you've got a whole load of other teaching stuff to do in those summer holidays. Uh, so it's, it's a real effort. You have to really think uh, hard about how to make this happen. You have to think about the systems that they are in and what you can actually do to buy time out and create space where possible. Uh, this is not just about waiting, although uh, in many cases it is about just being a little bit more patient uh, and, uh, and letting uh, your, your articles uh, take a little bit longer uh, so that you get uh, the, the inputs of these people. And in my case, uh, I didn't wait for, uh, for the, the local researchers. Uh, I was in a hurry. I needed to get, to, needed to get my PhD. 
um, uh, and, uh, and as a result, uh, we pr produced a, a bunch of papers out of this project uh, that had a bunch of white European male authors publishing work about Botswana with no tangible benefits for any of the local researchers who hadn't really had time to engage with our research. But to be honest, they could probably have benefited significantly from co-authorship opportunities had I tried harder to include them. But worse still than this is the second trap that I had fallen into, which is something known as epistemic racism. In the first papers I published from my PhD, I sought to tell the world how valuable indigenous knowledge was and how important it was that we take these knowledges into account by using science to explain why the local knowledge I had heard during my PhD research was in fact a more accurate reflection of reality than the dominant theories that were circulating in scientific circles at the time. Essentially, I was using scientific knowledge to validate local knowledge. Uh, now, I saw this as really respectful. I'm putting that local knowledge um, in the foreground. I'm you know, putting this into peer-reviewed journal articles, showing the world how great this no local knowledge is. <laughs> but uh, hopefully you can see where I'm going with this already. This is more than just patronising. It speaks to a deeper set of assumptions that Western knowledge systems are somehow superior and that to be valued, local knowledge has to first pass the test of whether or not it stands up to scrutiny by Western researchers. Oh, I'm cringing, cringing as I say this because, yeah, I look at this now and how could I've seen, how could I've not seen this? Um, but of course, it's easy now to, to look. Uh, once you've seen, you can't unsee. And at that point, I was blind to the epistemic racism that, uh, that I was just feeding into uh, uh, and doing so in a very public forum uh, as I published my research, uh, validating local knowledge. Now, I've got to admit that this process uh, and, and these revelations as they kind of came wave after wave was kind of earth-shattering shattering for me because I've stood in judgment of prominent people who have lost their jobs because someone uncovered something racist that they wrote on social media years ago. And I've judged some of my own family members who were some of the first missionaries in Central Africa for the way that they brought, they, they brought colonial culture with their message, despite the fact that they were fighting against the slave trade, they were trying to do good. And it seems that I have inadvertently followed in their footsteps. And in trying to do good through my work on impact, I've inadvertently been further marginalising the very people I've sought to help by putting myself at the centre of it all. But this is where I realise that perhaps I have been a little too hard on myself. Had I known what I do now, I wouldn't have done my early research the way I did, clearly. And as I continue to grow in this area, I hope I'll look back on where I am right now and see that I've grown past even this stage of revelation, of development now. So rather than trying to make excuses for myself or for my ancestors, I want to look at our hearts. 
and see this as an inner journey that is taking place over the course of generations, which will, I hope, continue for generations to come. And when I speak with self-compassion to my former self, I hope I'm able to speak with compassion to you too, if you're thinking about these issues for the first time. You too might not be proud of some of the projects you've run or the papers you've written, but as long as you're prepared to look at the prejudices and assumptions that took you to those places and can commit to developing new awareness and acting on your insights, you can be compassionate towards yourself. And self-compassion, I would argue, is the first step towards compassion for others. And let's remember, compassion is, by definition, empathy that takes action. I see those less fortunate than myself. I understand what it is to be them, and then take action based on the insights I get from seeing the world through their eyes. So what do I do? Do I self-censor? and change my role to stop publishing and start working harder to empower marginalised voices rather than just writing and talking about it. Well, other than joining my university's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, which I'm doing, uh, what more could I do that would actually change the situation on the ground? In my latest paper about tropical peatlands, I have a better balance of co-authors from developing countries than I've had in most of my previous work. It could still be better, and I'm working on thinking about what I can do in terms of the systems that I'm hearing from my in-country authors. Yeah, co-authors are preventing them from being able to engage to the level that they would like to. Uh, but I sought to, to create the time uh, and the opportunities and provide people with the support they need to substantively input to this work. Uh, and despite the additional time that that has taken, I would argue the paper is better as a result. Well, we'll see what the reviewers think of it, um, but I'm, I'm very pleased with what we've done. Closer to home, I, I'm asking myself what I can do in my local community. I'm working with uh, my local development trust as a volunteer board member, uh, with my local schools now more than ever before since lockdown. Um, and stopping travelling and such like. Uh, I work as research lead for the IUCN's UK Peatland programme, advocating for non-human stakeholders and future generations who would otherwise have no voice. So I'm doing something, but is it enough? Well, clearly the answer is no, and I'm thinking more deeply now, and I hope you are thinking more deeply as well, about what I can do, what you can do, what I should be doing, what you should be doing, whilst, of course, balancing these demands with the demands of our day jobs, and in my case, a young family that I want to put first as well. But there is a wider issue here of whether I should be stopping publishing and training in this area at all, now that I've reached this level of self-awareness. Or, on the other hand, do I have a responsibility to write and talk about this, as I'm doing today, to try and bring others on this journey with me? And as you can see, because I'm recording this episode today, that has ultimately been my conclusion. And so I've written a positionality statement at the start of the paper that my co-authors have left, describing the personal journey that I have been on. And it includes a public apology for some of my former work. 
Now, one colleague told me that they thought that this was going way too far, that I'm going to attract unwanted negative attention that could damage my reputation. But I think that whatever the consequences, if this is ultimately about a deeper, more lasting, perhaps even spiritual journey, rather than just some PR exercise, then I don't want to play the kind of political games that you see politicians playing on TV on a regular basis, where they say everything except the word sorry, because they've been trained that when you say sorry, this is an admission of guilt, and that's what loses you your job. I have self-compassion for my former self, who I knew was doing his best, but I am also genuinely sorry that my best was not enough, and that I could and will do better now. But you've heard enough of me talking about my journey. I want you to now apply this to your own context. And I'm going to conclude in a moment with a story that will help you to apply this. Uh, because I think the example of me working in a developing world context is perhaps a little bit distant to some of you. And I think issues around racism perhaps are more obvious to spot in an example like this. Uh, and I'm going to take this back to your own local community, to wherever you live with this uh, this final example. But before I move to that, I want you to try and apply what you've heard me talking about in terms of my own journey here to your own research. And imagine for a moment that I asked you to write a positionality statement at the, next of, at the start of your next paper. How would you do that? What would you write? What forms of privilege would you need to acknowledge? And how might you look differently at your research, at what you're about to write, as you understand the position from which you are writing? What could you do to actually empower and centre the voices of the most marginalised stakeholders you've worked with, taking yourself off the stage and valuing their perspectives and knowledge systems as much as you value the methods and worldviews you've absorbed from your discipline? And if, due to the nature of your research, none of that is possible, then what about simply engaging in some public engagements? Um, so I described how I'm sitting on the, the board of my local development trusts, uh, and in theory, my research might inform what I'm doing. I've yet to find that. Uh, it's tangentially, broadly linked to my research in some form, but I'm, I'm serving, ultimately, and drawing on those broader generic skills that I've learned as a researcher to serve in that role. Uh, the same with the school's work that I do, uh, very tangentially linked um, uh, to, to my own research, at least the, the current project I'm doing uh, uh, on food um, with my local schools. So what, what could you do in terms of public engagement uh, and uh, what kinds of uh, positionalities would you need to be aware of uh, to do that effectively? Now, as I said, I'm going to conclude with an, an, an example. Um, and this is an example from my next book, Impact Culture, which I'm going to be uh, foregrounding throughout this uh, series of the podcast. And this is, I think, uh, my favourite example of co-production from the book. And I covered a lot. I got the privilege of interviewing a, a range of people who were doing quite novel things in this space. And in the book, I, I've described the examples that I selected as extreme co-production. Uh, and I've done this to try and differentiate this from the kinds of things that we regularly call co-production in our research papers and to our funders, but that's probably, as I've suggested earlier, fall short. 
And I've chosen this because I want this to create a challenge for you that you're going to go away and think about once you finish listening. What could you do to follow in Nick and Jackie's steps that goes deeper than just doing a bit of public engagement, that really engages long-term with the needs, the priorities of your local community, and that works with them respectfully as genuine equals in a process that they are actually in the driving seat of? So, to the book. Now, I'm going to read this and you will discover that I am not the world's greatest reader. Uh, there is an audible version of the book which sounds like I am just this incredible reader, but it is heavily edited. <laughs> so I apologise in advance for stumbling over my words. Um, but uh, my, my favourite example of uh, extreme co-production, as I'm calling it, uh, from uh, Staffordshire University. One of the most inspiring models of extreme co-production I've seen came from a colleague with whom I've been training for years. I've lost count of the times I've trained researchers for Dr Jackie Reynolds at Staffordshire University, and despite talking regularly to her about impact, it wasn't until I told her about this book that she told me what she had been doing with her colleague Nicola Gratton, and I arranged an interview with them both. Jackie joined me from her sofa, and Nick joined me from her kitchen table, with a homely clutter of dishes behind her, and a sign on the wall that read, Gather here with grateful hearts. There was something about their down-to-earth approach that both warmed my heart and excited me. Their journey started over a decade ago, when they worked together in Staffordshire University's Creative Communities Unit, or CCU as I'm going to call it, a dedicated public engagement unit that was set up in 2002 and continued until 2018. As part of a multidisciplinary team of experienced community practitioners and academics, they worked with community members and a wide range of organisations through teaching, research and consultancy. The work of CCU was based on principles of participation, inclusion and action. These principles were applied in the development of Get Talking, an approach to participatory action research that places emphasis on the use of creative engagement techniques to reach people often underrepresented, uh, sorry, can't say that word, often underrepresented as community researchers and research participants. Whilst it was originally designed as a short course, the Get Talking approach was adopted as the methodology for much of the practice of CCU. The practice of recruiting teams of community researchers to work as partners on projects was commended by local organisations and community members alike. The work was so successful that the CCU started attracting funding from local government and charities to deliver outcomes for the local communities they were serving. In many cases, these were larger projects where the university was just one of many partners. And even when the university was the main contractor, the projects were often led by the local funders rather than the university. Through Get Talking, the CCU was able to reach vulnerable and hard-to-reach groups that would otherwise have been invisible, as well as inaccessible to university researchers. 
community researchers could also enroll to get uh, for, to, for a course to get credit for their work, enabling people who had never engaged in higher education before, and probably would never have considered doing so, to gain a qualification. Over time, the unit built up a large team of community researchers who could work on new projects as they came in. And whilst the CCU no longer exists and Jackie is now a research impact manager, Nick continues to build, build on the CCU legacy to further develop the use of Get Talking in her current role as lead for civic engagement and evaluation. Nick adapts the, the approach for a diverse range of projects and is highly committed to the principle of inclusion, always seeking to overcome barriers to people getting involved in Get Talking. By training and where possible paying community researchers to work on projects, she aims to ensure that the research is both for the community and by the community. Nick was at pains to emphasise the huge contributions of community researchers to the university, but also highlight some of the positive impacts for those who've taken part. Many have gained new friends through taking part in events. They've also established a network that became a lifeline for many when the country went into lockdown in response to the coronavirus outbreak. There are layers and layers of impact when you get co-production right. So let's wrap things up at this point. Hopefully you're listening to this last story and asking yourself what you could do to engage with your stakeholders and publics, whether they're your local community or some other community that has an interest in your research in ways that are deeply more respectful, more equal in engagement. This idea of community researchers. Uh, we often describe ourselves as the researchers and uh, all of those people out there as the stakeholders. Well, actually, what if, in fact, we are the stakeholders? We have a stake in our research going right uh, in terms of our papers, uh, our funders, uh, our promotion prospects, uh, etc. And what if we actually now reframe our stakeholders as the researchers? Uh, how might we now start to engage with our stakeholders more as equals, being more curious about their perspectives, what they think might actually work, given the constraints, limitations, the cultures, uh, the ways of doing things that they understand uh, are the norm within their communities. Might we be able to reach deeper uh, into those communities? And might those communities be able to reach deeper into our university communities? And might there be win-wins that we would otherwise never be able to get? And this is the beauty of co-production. It makes you think. It makes you reevaluate who you are, your position in the whole of this research process. And my hope is that by reflecting on both this story that I've just told from my book and my own recent experiences, that you will be looking again at who you are, your identity, the layers of privilege that you hold, that you're not conscious of, you're not aware of, the systems that you are part of that perpetuate your privilege, that, again, are completely invisible to you as someone who might be privileged. 
And as you become aware of that, uh, your position, I ask you to think about how that position in your networks, in your research, should change how you interact with your stakeholders and the role that you should play, not just as the researcher in its traditional sense. Uh, nor even in the idea of uh, a researcher as a knowledge broker, as I've described very often. But the idea of a researcher as someone who takes action. Uh, this idea that we are going to be compassionate in our research. We're compassionate towards ourselves. We're compassionate to those that we want to help. And by compassion, as I said earlier, I mean empathy with action. And great, we've done the, that, that empathic step. We think we know what the right questions are to ask. We're taking an empathic approach to the research, sharing that journey with our stakeholders now. But how can we uh, emphasize the end point that makes that whole thing worth it, that actually makes it really genuinely compassionate and genuinely co-productive and make sure that we take action? How can we make time for this, uh, for ourselves, for our colleagues, who are less fortunate than ourselves in terms of their teaching loads, uh, given the fact that we have a day job to do, that we have other commitments outside work and we don't want to overwork or set a bad example for those who work with us and for us in terms of our own work-life balance. These are not easy questions, but they are questions that I believe we all need to ask ourselves. So good luck as you ask yourselves these questions, and I hope that this is a productive set of questions for you to go and reflect on now.